The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give everything he has cannot be my disciple. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, that was a nice, easy gospel lesson, wasn't it? You know, you encounter these people, and all they know about Jesus is that they've seen this picture, these pictures of him where he looks like some Swedish guy in a bathrobe who wouldn't hurt a fly, they talk about this gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I'm like, have you read what the guy said? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. In fact, if you're not able to pick up your cross, i.e. an instrument of a torturous death, if you're not willing to strap an electric chair on your back and carry that around and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Now, we should be clear. There is a figure of speech here. There is a Semitism, a way of speaking that would have been common in, uh, commonly understood by Jesus' hearers. So when he said in Aramaic, if you, anyone comes and doesn't hate his father and mother, he didn't actually mean you have to have everlasting scorn and contempt for your father and mother, your wife and your children. I have teenagers. That doesn't seem like such a heavy lift sometimes. But that's not what that means, really. It doesn't mean you have to hate. It just means you have to prefer God to all of these. Which doesn't really make it all that much easier, does it? Right? Like, okay, I don't have to hate my wife. But I do have to put God ahead of my wife and my father and my mother and my children and even my own life. It especially doesn't help much when you look at the end of the passage, what he says. In the same way, any of you who doesn't give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. 
So times like these, when I come across a gospel reading like this, I say, let's go and see what the Old Testament reading has to say today. Maybe there's something there that will be easier to preach on. Okay, so... Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, the word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, go down to the potter's house and there I'll give you my message. Oh, this is nice. It'd be like, like arts and crafts day. So they go down to the potter's house and, and I go to the potter's house and I see him working at the wheel and all's well. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. And so the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as seemed best to him. And then the word of Yahweh came to me, Hey, house of Israel, my people, who says I can't do with you just like the potter does with this clay? Hmm? I mean, like clay in the potter's hand, that's just like what you are in my hand. And if any time, my people, listen to this, if at any time... I announce that a kingdom or a nation is going to be uprooted. It's going to be torn down and destroyed. But then if it repents, did you guys read Jonah? If it repents, then I'll relent and I won't inflict upon it the disaster that I had planned. But see, if at another time, right? This reminds you of the story Jesus tells about the two brothers where the, the dad says, you guys get, get your lazy butts out of bed and get out there in the field to work. And the one brother says, no. I'm going back to bed. And the other one says, sure, Dad, right there. Then the first brother says, oh, fine. And he grumbles his way out and he starts working. Whereas the one who said, I'll be right there, rolled back over and went back to sleep. So if you've got a situation where this nation that is going to be built up and planted does evil in my sight and doesn't obey me, well, then I'm going to reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. So, Jeremiah, here is what I have for you to say to the people of Judah and to those living in Jerusalem. This is what Yahweh says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you, devising a plan against you. Like the potter took this misshapen, malformed pot and threw it in a pile and mashed it up again so that he could start over. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you. Reform your ways. Reform your actions. Well, that's not much better, is it? How about Paul? Paul's always got something cheerful to say. Sometimes. All right, so okay. Paul's all right. Shortest letter, that should be good too, right? Shortest letter, uh, one, chapter, one of the one-chapter books in the New Testament. And Paul's writing to Philemon, our friend, and our fellow worker, and Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, this church that meets in your home. Okay, so this is Paul writing one of these neat little letters to a church. And he always thanks God as he remembers them in their prayers. He talks about how wonderful they are and how uh, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Well, wait a minute, maybe... Maybe this isn't a letter to the whole church. This seems like it's a letter just to Philemon. He says it's to the church that meets in your home, but then he addresses Philemon directly. So basically he's got this letter that he wrote to this guy, this one guy, Philemon, call him Phil. So Paul writes a letter to Phil. But this letter that he wrote to Phil is being read in front of Phil's whole church that meets in his house. 
with all of all the people who know him well. Aphia might be a, a sister of Philemon, I don't know. But I know that Paul is saying these wonderful things, and he says, you know, Phil, even though in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. So I, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he's really tugging on the heartstrings there, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. We don't know the, all the details of the backstory here. Some people think that Onesimus was a runaway slave, one of Phil's slaves who ran away, found his way to Paul, and then somehow came to faith while he was with Paul. It's probably more likely that Phil was so fed up with Onesimus, he says, go and, and help Paul. I am, I'm sick of you. You're, you're too much trouble. Maybe Paul can straighten you out. Sometimes that happened when there was a conflict between a master and a slave. They would bring in a third party to try to resolve things. We don't know. What we do know is that this slave, Onesimus, name means useful, became useful to Paul while he was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. In fact, Onesimus came to faith. And, he said, and Paul says, so he used to be useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And so I'm sending him, Paul says, Onesimus, who's my very heart, back to you. I, I, I'd have loved to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, Phil. I hadn't got any visits from you. You didn't send me a cake with a file enclosed in it, did you? But see, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any, any favor that you do for me would be spontaneous rather than forced. Paul, remember, Paul's writing this letter to Phil. It's being read in front of Phil's whole church. I don't know, maybe the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. Maybe not have him be your slave anymore. But even better than that, maybe you could have him as your brother. I mean, he's very dear to me, but I know he's even dearer to you, Phil both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Not as a slave, as a brother in the Lord. And so if you think of me as your partner, then welcome him the way you'd welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, yeah, put it on my tab. And I'm writing this, by the way, write this here. This is me, Paul, writing this sentence in my own hand so that you know this is me writing this letter to you, Phil, this letter that's being read in front of your whole church. And I do wish, my brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ and confident in your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Imagine you are in Phil's church and you're sitting behind him while this letter is being read. You, just, you see him slinking lower and lower and lower in his pew. Paul is so, so smart. He's so brilliant. And this isn't the only place he does this, where he just rhetorically maneuvers the person he's talking to into a place where they can't do anything except what Paul wants them to do. Oh, one more thing Paul says. By the way, um, uh, prepare a guest room for me because I'm going to be coming by. I hope soon to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. 
In other words, I'm going to check up on whether you did this. <laughs> it's really fun to read this if you're not Phil. It was probably awkward for a lot of the people in Phil's church, too, because they would have known about the beef that he had with Onesimus. They would have known what was going on. They would have known very well what was going on, and they would have known exactly how Phil was feeling while this letter was being read to everybody else but right at him. But if you're Philemon, if you're Phil, you've just been asked not only to give up whatever economic benefit you would have derived from having this person be your slave. You're not only asked to give up whatever, and it's it's speculated that maybe Onesimus had stolen some money or something, but you are asked to lose a great deal of face. Roman Empire, a slave ran away from his master, could be killed. It was not thought twice about. I was saying, finally, I mean, you, you have an opportunity here to do the right thing. It's going to cost you. So let's go back to that gospel where Jesus says, the same way any of, you, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Paul didn't ask Philemon to give up everything he had. He did ask him to give up his claim on Onesimus and whatever he was owed. Incidentally, the happy ending to that story is that we read in the early 2nd century about a bishop of Ephesus named Onesimus. Maybe it was this Onesimus himself. Maybe it was a name that got popular because Onesimus came to be seen as a respected and valued member of the community. But Philemon had to give up something, regardless of whether he should have had it in the first place. For him, it was a sacrifice. And once again, just like he keeps doing. God gives us no other choice. Because look at those two parabolic examples that Jesus gives. The first one, who starts to build something and then doesn't figure out how much he's going to need to complete it. You get the thing halfway built, you're going to look like an idiot. And then, you know, what, what king is going to having half the army of some other king try to go up against him. Therefore you, Jesus says, in the same way, if you don't give up everything you have, you can't be my disciple. He is placing us in the position of the king who is outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned. He's placing us in the position of the one who needs to sue for peace, who needs to cry out for mercy. The good news is God is always ready to give it. If you look at our collect this morning, we pray grant us to trust in you with all our hearts, for as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those 
who make their boast of your mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is all good news for us, really. It really is. Because when we throw ourselves on God's mercy, we will be taken care of. When we submit our will to His, we are putting ourselves in better hands than our own. When we dance to His beat, it's a better, stronger one than one we could come up with. Jim Elliot, the 20th century martyr, the missionary, said that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so the question that you may have, certainly the one that was bugging me all week, is what is that? What is that thing? Bill Maloney says, what, tell me, what is your secret? What's on your blistered soul? What is that one little secret, the one that's taking its toll? Is there something that God has been patiently but insistently drawing your attention to? Something that you want to hang on to? Something that he's saying... No, I need that too. Because anyone who doesn't give up all he has can't be my disciple. And end with a story from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, this novella where Lewis describes a, a visit basically with a bunch of people from hell who are visiting heaven. And one of those ghosts, the people from hell, has got this lizard sitting on his shoulder. Those of you who have read this remember this scene vividly. He's got this lizard sitting on its shoulder. And this ghost is encountered by an angel. And ghost says to him, yeah, I told the lizard that his stuff would not do here. He'd have to be quiet if he came here, and he insisted on it, but, but he won't be quiet. He won't shut up. He won't leave me alone, so I'm just going to have to go back. And the angel says, well, you want me to make him quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. All right, then I'll kill him said the angel, taking a step forward. Whoa! Look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Well, don't you want him killed, said the angel? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. That's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, while it's so embarrassing, may I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's, gonna go, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. 
may I kill it. Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I should be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Well, get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. Well, you're hurting me now. Well, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But isn't that? Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus. I'll get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come back the first moment I can. Now, this moment contains all my... And it goes on and on and on and on. And then finally, the angel says, have I your permission? Well, I know it'll kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right, the ghost says. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Damn it, blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The angel closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. But then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then, brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, not much smaller than the angel. But what distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed, so, so far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. But as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair. Suddenly I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I've ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed its bright body. Horse and master breathed into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the angel and embraced them. And when he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may only have been the liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell and then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I well knew what was happening. They were only like a shooting star far off on the green plain, soon among the foothills of the mountain, into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. The fact is God doesn't take flawed pottery 
and throw it into a pile and mash it up again out of spite or out of frustration. Certainly not out of hate. He does so in order to make a new pot. He doesn't take our failings and shake his head, wag his finger. He doesn't look at our sins and turn away from us. He says to us, I can handle that. He says, that's not too much for me. That's not beyond my power to transform. And so, I'll leave you with what God said through Jeremiah in between our reading last week and this week. He says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And there you will find rest for your souls. That's what we do here. That's why we come here. We open this word to hear what God has to say to his people. That's why we gather at the table to receive the bread and the wine, his blood shed for us, his body broken for us. We affirm together our faith, our trust, our confidence in this God who is able to make something beautiful out of nothing. And we experience that more and more as we agree with him, that all things are his, that we really can only be his disciples if we're willing to say goodbye to whatever we may be clutching onto. It's all his anyway. May as well give it to him now. Amen.